Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hello, it's Martin here again, Electronically Yours, as always. Uh, today's guest is somebody who I've admired for a very long time. It's Tom Bailey from Thompson Twins. Great songwriter. Well, they're famous hits. They had a string of top ten hits, basically. Um, I was an enormous fan of. Uh, Hold Me Now is just a beautiful piece of production, beautiful piece of um, songwriting. Doctor, Doctor, You Take Me Up, Love On Your Side, We Are Detective. Um, interesting kind of hybrid of traditional kind of rock production and synthesizer a lot of the time. Didn't really get credit for that as much as they should, really. Um, I think he's a really good producer of the stuff and interestingly enough the conversation you're about to hear we get into discussing his love of dub music which is uh, he's created quite a lot of with his um, band International Observer which you, you should definitely check out on um, on Spotify or whatever he's a very smart guy he's a very interesting character and I've got a lot of time for his work. He's a lover of India. He's done um, uh, stuff with Indian music. He's worked all over the world. He's back to tour with the Human League in uh, November and December. So that should be fun. Um, and I was looking at their Spotify figures. I mentioned it in the talk. Um and they are they are three times as popular as Heaven Seventeen in terms of streams. Um, I think largely it's because they had uh, huge hits in America, and we never really did. Um, but nevertheless, it's quite an eye opener when you think about it. I also played with Madonna in uh, Philadelphia in Live Aid, amazingly. So here he is, the one and only Tom Bailey. So where are you in New Zealand? In Auckland. Um, and the whole country's just gone into lockdown because we've got some some rare cases in the community, as we oh, call it here. Christ. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in a bit of an unusual situation because having kept it out completely for a long time, that's still the, tra the strategy is to exclude it rather than manage it. Right. So we're doing this whole thing again of... Everyone's staying at home for a couple of weeks, I guess. Oh, God, what a pain in the ass. Well, the, 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 the UK government have just abandoned the whole fucking thing now. They're just I going, know, yeah, do what you want, basically. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, cases aren't that bad. I mean, you know, it's all bad. Um, mm -hmm. And it's been horrible for everyone. I mean, I always want to get this out of the way first because it's, it's mm -hmm. front and centre yeah. of everybody's world at the moment, isn't it? So... But, um, and then we can get on with the fun stuff, which okay. is um, no. But it is interesting, and it has changed our lives. So you know, it's a it's a relevant thing to to kind of go on about for for a moment. Yeah. And um, obviously, especially in our business, we're itching to get back to good old normal. If it will ever be that way again, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, um, we've done, we've just done a few uh, Let's Rock shows and. Uh, we did Rewind North, which was just mind-bendingly oh, yeah. good, actually. 
fantastic. Well, they're, yeah. they're, they're great. They're great gigs, aren't they? And, but um, I heard uh, I heard yesterday that one of the Let's Rocks has been cancelled through. They haven't got a license because they can't get enough security people because people have wandered off the industry, you know, oh, with shit. nothing with no work. Um, now suddenly, all mostly the ancillary staff aren't there for the for the promoters. So, so which, which which one is that? Yeah. It's in a couple of weeks' time. That's all I know. Um, my manager, Joe Stops, was telling me that he's just had it cancelled on him. Oh shit! Um, for Howard, for Howard Jones, I think. So, um, yeah, it just goes to show that there's all sorts of unexpected consequences of oh, all this yeah. nonsense. You know? Like they're talking about not having enough turkeys for Christmas now. That's a latest <laughs> thing, but that's more Brexit, I think. Um, yeah. Well, Brexit is responsible for a lot of this shit, and everybody blames it on the co on yeah. COVID. But um, anyway, let's mm. move on mm. to fun stuff, shall we? Uh, thank you for doing it, by the way. I really okay. appreciate it. Um, it it's, no, it's a great pleasure. Yeah, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of the others, and uh, there's been some quite yeah, yeah, astounding ones. I mean, the Tony Visconti one was my favourite. I mean, twelve of my top twenty albums, yeah. you know, he produced so. Um, right, fantastic. Anyway, yeah. So um, let's get this out of the way first. Are you a fellow Sheffield Wednesday fan? Well, I, I have the slightest claim to that to that glory. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, it's the only football team I was ever slightly interested in when I, when I was about 11 years old. Yeah, yeah. I've never been dragged in any other direction. I've got plenty of friends who passionately support other clubs and – uh, you know, I've avoided their influence. But you made a um, Sheffield Wednesday record, correct? That's that. Yeah. Well, ish. It was. It was kind of. Um, it was kind of thrust upon me, to be honest. <laughs> but I, I was. Well, quite uh, happy being about a Sheffield it. Wednesday fan is something that is thrust upon you by uh, by heritage. In my case, but I love it anyway. Um, but we are part of an elite crew. You know, there's myself, yourself. And Dave, uh, and uh, Paul Carrick, who also really? made a Sheffield Wednesday record. I made two actually. I did really? One. Yeah, I made um, I made a record called "If It's Wednesday, It Must Be Wembley." You know, uh, you probably don't uh, know because you're in the middle of your uh, the high point of your career. But um, we got to Wembley twice in 1993. And uh, uh, sorry, 83, 93, 93. Was it 93? Mm-hmm. My brain's going. Um, anyway, I, um, I made a record for Wednesday. Uh, yeah, it was 93. And um, uh, by that time, you were in a different part of the world, probably, weren't you? Maybe. I can't remember the exact yeah, yeah. dates of any of those things. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. So I thought I'd get that out of the way. Um, so let's talk about – so you grew up in Chesterfield, is that right? Well, I did my high school years there, yeah. Right. So, but I was I was born in in the West Riding, and then moved around the Midlands and so on and so forth, and then ended up in Chesterfield, um, probably aged nine or ten, and so did you know, the the last bit of junior school and all the high school years there. Right, right. And you were you worked in a hospital in Sheffield, is that right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. All oh, right, cool. And the, and a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's uh, that's Middlewood in Middlewood in Sheffield. Yeah, right? which was no longer exists as far as I know. Yeah. Um, but uh, in in those days, it was one of the last of the great kind of Victorian nut houses that still 
um, did a, a roaring trade, you know. And it was, um, in many ways, a, a great place because you managed to, uh, uh, I suppose, you managed to focus all the resources in one place for, for, for those needs. But on the other hand, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of forbidding, you know, an enormous campus stretched yeah. for miles. I think it had the longest corridor of any building in the U- in the UK <laughs> at the time. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> now it was a bit of a legendary thing for the, the podcast listeners. The uh, the uh, Middlewood Hospital was like a, a kind of it's a bit like you know everybody calls uh, vacuum cleaners Hoovers. Like, like Middlewood Hospital was uh, shorthand for something that was a little bit shameful in those days, you know, mm-hmm. that people went and always gone to Middlewood, you know, and it's like, obviously pl- times are different now, thank God. But um, yeah, it was quite a forbidding place. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, and then, so when did you get, when, I mean, you're a music teacher, right? As well. The, that's right. Yeah. Briefly, I taught in a secondary school, Brook School in, in Richmond, Sheffield. Right and um, kind of en- enjoyed aspects of that, but essentially I'm, I'm not a very good teacher for kind of classes of teenagers. It just didn't work for me, you know. I I love um, teaching instrumentalists, and I love rehearsing a band, for example, and teaching right. people parts and doing all that kind of stuff. But in terms of getting people to kind of enjoy forty minutes a week of a lesson they thought didn't really count for much. Yeah, I've recently become involved in in uh, teaching an MA course in commercial music production and uh, another <laughs> one in songwriting. And I've got, I started off with three hours to fill. And I'm going, <laughs> you know, I don't mind teaching people, but that's an awful long time to engage people's interest, isn't it? Uh, it, it is. Yeah. It's tough. But at least you've already got a self-selected yeah um audience as it that's were true that's true um, and i did a little bit of teaching at university here as well and and that was much much easier and sparkier i mean sometimes i had to kind of wake people up a little bit i thought but it it, it was people who wanted to be there yeah that's true as I opposed to, to can there. you remember being can you remember being a young secondary school student and like resenting <laughs> things <laughs> I think I spent most of my time taking the piss out of the teachers at King Edward yeah, in Sheffield. Yeah, yeah. Um, we so there it was, was a lot like, of that going on. It was like a battle, you know, more than a more mm. more than a learning situation. Mm. Um, so, so you were trained uh, as a musician uh, on what instruments? Uh, guitar, piano, the piano and clarinet. Clarinet. Mm. Have you ever used clarinet in your recordings? Um, Strangely enough, I have. I've used it on other people's recordings, but never on my Really? Own. Are you good um, at it? No, I'm useless. But I can make some pretty um, aggressive kind of shrieking noises with it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that? Oh, I might take it up. It sounds good. Um, so when when did you get? Uh, so how did uh, you were in? You you moved to you at one point moved to London, and that's where you met Alana and. And yeah. uh, and you were in a. I, I read that you were in a uh, a squat. Was it or or something? Yeah, yeah. Those are the days when you know you 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 had a choice between paying rent or, or starving. You know, so <laughs> That's right. I figured I'd rather have a bag of chips and live for free. <laughs> yeah, and nicking electricity and all that stuff. <laughs> 
all that stuff. And in fact, you know, everyone else was doing it. I think that the street I lived in, in London, in South London, Lillishville Road, had five bands in it. And where, where, fair, which area was that in? In, in Clapham. And right. Clapham Common. And it was, um, yeah, it was notorious for being full of kind of creative individuals and groups. So. Right. Right, I think right. without without that possibility, we'd have all had to get mundane jobs, and probably it would have killed the creative instinct. Yeah, the in, problem, in a lot of us. The problem now, because uh, I, you know, obviously, I, the group that I teach is around about the age you would have been starting out in mm-hmm. London, mm-hmm. Uh, or a bit older. But um, the problem now is that everybody, for a lot of middle class families that have got kids. Uh, it seems like a real, a, a, a genuine um, possibility that you might be able to make a career out of being a musician. Everybody's either a DJ or a musician at some point because they've all mm-hmm. got the means of production at home, you know, and their mates are doing it. It's a peer group thing. And, I, and my job a lot of the time as a teacher is to is to kind of attenuate people's expectations and, and create a, sen- a sense of realism because... Everybody wants to do the same shit now, you know. Mm-hmm. You you took a risk, right? You went down to London. You you really threw yourself in the deep end, as I did at that time, and and went look for 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 good or bad. This is what I'm going to do, and and mm-hmm. I think I'm good at it, and I think we can do it. If you multiply that by a hundred times, that's what people want to do, but they don't take those risks anymore because they can do it at home. And uh, I think that's an interesting uh, dynamic now, which is changing the kind of music that's being made. What do you think? Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, the, the the kind of marketing of rebelliousness has taken over everything in life, you know, <laughs> from um, and, and, and being in a band, you know, posturing with a guitar and a leather jacket just is one of those things now. It doesn't really mean what it used to mean. Um, that's okay anyway, but we have to understand that things have changed. And if you're looking for the, the the kind of last vestiges of rebellion in rock and roll, you won't find it just by dressing up. No. So so something else has to be sought out, and it's a it's a difficult ask actually. I mean, um, that that great rebellious spirit, the need, the kind of charge of of revolution yeah. that rock, rock and roll used to kind of flag wave for, has has gone elsewhere. And in a way, it's an interesting thing. It's gone into the internet, you know, where it can't where it can't be controlled, and so it becomes very perverse and weird. And unexpected things happen all the time that you, you don't necessarily feel a part of in the way that. And yeah. that might just be because you know generational thing as well. But I mean, for me, rock and roll was um, an absolute commitment, and it was, and it was done selfishly as well as from courage. You know, I just yeah. couldn't bear to do anything else <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. going going down to london was like something just to please me i wanted to do that yeah yeah fair enough and what um if you were if you were doing the same thing uh, now how do you think it would pan out i mean at the same age you know. i don't know well as i was saying probably the, you know the searchlight of 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 rebelliousness has moved into other areas. So probably being in a band is like you know interesting and cool, but not really. It's not going to change anything. Yeah. In the same way that we felt maybe it could, unless maybe you know if you're if you're a 
See, that's from the perspective of an older white pop musician. But, you know, if I was a younger black hip hop musician, I might be saying, no, this is right on the case and right on the point. And th- this, this is a necessary thing and, and it's totally happening and what have you. But so. But I mean, a lot, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the uh, imperative when I was in a band and everybody else that I knew was it was a way of being cool in your social circle and your peer group. Uh, getting girlfriends, uh, you know, feeling like you're doing something worthwhile, not just uh, socially. I mean, we were obviously, as you know, we, we had a, a, a socialist background and we were into all that stuff. And I still am, actually. But, um, the, but, the, but the most important thing was we could have some cool parties with lots of people, invite lots of random people and, uh, and, and kind of mix it up, you know. And also in Sheffield... Um, there was a big social scene of all the bands that were that that were around at that time. You know, we used to hang out on West Street in Sheffield with, uh, and bump into you know Cabaret Voltaire all the time. And Martin mm-hmm. Fry was hanging out looking cool, and he was part of Vice Versa before he got into ABC, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And um, yeah, I just found all. Uh, uh, those seed conditions tend not to happen so much now. But you were saying that your street had loads of. Uh, uh, nascent bands uh were any did any do do any good yeah i mean some of them are you know to some extent um legendary like the slits yes there and the po- uh, pop group you know oh, yeah, yeah. mostly yeah. mostly based in in bristol but the elements of the pop group there and then a few you you've never heard no. of probably but um yeah exactly uh, but definitely, you're right. You know that there was a sense of something in the air, which was m- more than just isolated cases. It was a, yeah. it was congealing through society. Yeah, yeah. And, and it just, you know, I, I think that's happened several times in the history of rock and roll. You know, people in the Beatles era era of Liverpool say that, you know, it was diff- difficult to find someone who wasn't in a group. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And when, uh, and do you think it'll ever happen again? Don't know, don't know. But I certainly, I, I only, I can only repeat my feeling that, that the kind of crucial nature of music as an agent of change has, has gone for the moment anyway. <laughs> I so know, sad. I know. It's so, it's true, but sad. Um, mm. So tell me about um, this kind of uh, stratospheric rise of the Thompson Twins. Do you have any bands before that? Do you have any kind of proto-Thompson Twins manifesto? Um, not really. I mean, the, the the core of the Twins was three um, guitarists who played together at school, you know, so that, that was the kind of earliest version of that band, I suppose. Right. Um, and then I went off and became a hippie and you know, wandered around India and l- learned to play uh, those kind of musics as well. <laughs> and you when I came back, I sure did. Yeah. Well, actually, um, not until later, but um, I, I have I have been through a long hair period. Yeah, we all did. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and when I came back from India, it was seventy six, and so. I kind of landed in a heap in the southwest of England somewhere, and punk was happening. So, right, that was that was the excuse we needed to make it like a, an official thing that we weren't just friends playing guitars together. We actually formed a band, and that was the Thompson Twins. Right, and that and that and that was the name from that moment. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, so yeah, seventy six. That's quite early in the kind of punk journey, isn't it? Really. So, so uh, I'm interested in when you uh, decided to move in a more kind of electronic hybrid direction. Right. Well, we did a couple of albums as a fairly standard format. <laughs> well, the, the first the first one was based on a two guitars, bass and drums lineup. But then I started to include um, elements of really, I guess, percussion that I'd heard um, on, strange enough, West African records as well as Indian music. Um in that first Thompson Twins album. And then in the second one, finally could afford a synthesizer, you know, which was the thing I was really hanging out for. And which one was that? Um, I I got an Oberheim OBXA. Uh, very good. Very good. Yeah. I'm an amazing tool, which I still have. Actually, my son's nicked it, but it's still in in, in the family somewhere. Right. And, um, and, and I wouldn't really choose to use anything else um, in, in terms of, you know, uh, analog hardware. But um, yeah, that that kind of changed everything, and it really was the thing I was waiting for. But if you remember, you know, you could buy a guitar for fifty quid, and a decent polyphonic synthesizer was five thousand. Yeah, so, yeah. So it wasn't fair. It, you had to go the guitar way just to be in a band, unless yeah. you had money. Did um, you buy? Um, we bought our initial synths on um, higher purchase. Did you really? No, no. I waited until I could just bag one, I think. Um, and it just arrived halfway through that second album of the early Thompson Twins lineup. Started to use it a little bit. But actually, that was produced by Steve Lillywhite, and he dragged Tom Dolby in. So there you I go. Thought, another I had, I had another electronically yours alumni. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's a good lad, Tom, isn't he? He is, yeah, fantastic, and 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 of course, full of ideas. So that was an interesting thing to have him there. I was just kind of learning how to switch the synthesizer on, <laughs> and, and and never mind program it and play it. But uh, he he was doing all this kind of interesting stuff. But then I had um, not enough tracks for the album. We were short of material. So, and I also got my hands on a, on a very early drum machine by a company called Movement. Oh, I remember and, those. They were good. Yeah, oh, yeah, shit, the, the Movement drum machine. Yeah, I did a B-side yeah. for one of the Heaven 17 things on that. I've been trying yeah. to think what that was called. Thank you. I forgot all about that. Did you have the wooden one or the fiberglass one? It was wooden. Yeah. Yes, that was the early one. Then it was yeah. wooden with a little with a little TV set on top. Yeah, you could get um, some amazing sounds out of that. Yeah, that yeah. So anyway, I said to, and this, you know, this is the famous story of the breakup of the early twins. Was I, I said, I'll just write, I'll come up with something to be a filler on the end of side two of the album. And so using this new Oberheim synthesizer and the movement drum machine, um, I made a track called In the Name of Love, which was embarrassingly good. <laughs> <laughs> And he thought, so, so, oh, fuck, this is the direction then. Yes, it was definitely the writing on the wall, but it was more embarrassing than that. It became track one, side one. You know? Oh, really? Instead of, oh. instead of track five, side two. And um, so really it kind of wrote itself into the uh, into the history. And, and that was our first hit. 
Isn't that amazing? And it, I've, I believe this is true. It's been true for Hemmings MT in the Human League. Is, is um, you know, if you do things from an authentic, artistic heart, even if you don't think it's got anything to do with commerciality, it often turns out to be more commercial than the stuff you're really aiming at. Yeah, yeah, I, get, I know what you mean. Um, and yet it's something you can't set out to do. No, you know, it's, it, it runs it away from you. If you chase it, it runs away from you. So you just exactly, got to let it yeah. flow. I think, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I am an enormous fan of of your singles. I just, I mean, your oh. hit singles. Um, they somehow, at that period, summed up the 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 zeitgeist of the uh, of the uh, of the kind of pop sensibility at that point for me more than any right. more than any other artist. I, I just think you know. Uh, yeah, that's, it, that's very kind of you to say. Hold well, me now. You know, by that stage, of all time, you know, I just think it's brilliant. Oh wow! Well, wow. you're very, very kind. <laughs> that true. Um, I think by that stage, you can't really divorce the music entirely from the image as well, and you know that that whole thing we started of four guys playing guitars and and and, and bass and drums had changed as far as it was possible to go because we were black, white, male and female by the time we had those big hits. And so in, a, in some funny way, we started to rewrite the possibility of what a pop group should look like. And, and, and I think obviously other people were doing that and it, it was a sign of the times. So we just kind of fit it in. And if you happen to have some catchy songs at the same time, then I oh, think no, was... no, no, you're really doing yourself a disservice. You know damn well that those songs are really beautifully constructed. I know sure. when I've written, I mean, we did it a few times, not many, but you know, when you know when you've written a, a song that is that that you, you know, it's not, it doesn't really sum you up to say that you're proud of it. It's more like, You've 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 hit the center of the target, you know. Uh, and I, uh, how did you feel when you wrote, you know, kind of hold me now? Did you know that was a smash? Yes, I think we knew. I mean, you, you're right, I absolutely agree with you that 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 you know when you're when you're onto something. Usually, anyway, sometimes things sneak up on you as yeah. well. But um, and sometimes you think you're onto something, but you aren't. Yeah. And <laughs> but there's there's a. There's a there's a kind of heavy. There's a heavyweight sensation when you, as yeah. you say, hit the target, and it, it, it's um, it's very exciting and a little bit frightening as well because suddenly the the weight of responsibility uh, of getting it right. You know, once, once yeah. you've found this amazing idea, you can't blow it. <laughs> well, you know. It, sorry, I, I just to interrupt. I often think about Motown. Because they were my kind of template for how to make how to write hit record almost, mm -hmm. and uh, but they had a different attitude. It was like when they had a hit, and it the sound of it was right. They just kept repeating it until it ran out of juice. Like it, they, they took the orange that they'd already juiced, and they kept squeezing the orange until every last drop. You know, like the Temptations would have a hit with a certain thing, and then 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 the record company would go, okay. The next rec record has to sound exactly like that, and uh, we—I never felt that. I don't know. How do you feel about that? I always—I always felt this impetus to kind of surprise people. I think. Yeah, 
I, I think you're right. I mean, there's so many different ways to to approach that that job, and it depends what your personal influences are, you know, and how you allow them to seep into what you're doing. And one of the big influences for me was dub music, you know. So, yeah. and, and one of the impulses within dub is to confuse and to to upset the expectation, you know, to rip it out, rip out the guts of it, and leave it lying on the floor. And so, yes. Those those things are part of good arrangement, I think. Yeah. But you know, th- by the same token, we all end up kind of migrating towards that verse, bridge, chorus, first bridge, chorus, middle eight. <laughs> verse, bridge, but chorus, it works, doesn't it? It works. <laughs> yes. So within our cultural references, there are certain kind of classical formats, certain classical architectures that we know work well. Exactly. I uh, one of my favourite phrases when I'm teaching is that. Um, is to encourage my students to look at things uh, from the point of view of the meaningful denial of expectation. Well, wow. it's not my phrase, and I can't remember who said it, but I just mm. love that idea. Is you set up an expectation and then you meaningfully deny right. it. Right. And that's that's so. To set up an expectation, it's easier to do that with a a, a traditional form. And then you deny the expectation, mm. or you modify it in some way, or surprise right. people That's throughout right. throughout right. a song. But um, we yeah. we shouldn't forget also that in the early era of electronic pop music, the very use of synthetic sound was, in a way, an outrage, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it, or it certainly had a kind of novelty factor. Oh, definitely. That, um, that allowed you to be both. Kind of poptastic and bleak at the same time. You know? Yeah, in, so you in, had you in, had the catch. Yeah, go on. Catchiness and cool. <laughs> well, interestingly, I was interviewing Billy Curry yesterday, and uh-huh. I'd forgotten about. But I mean, I've, I've known Billy for forty years, but um, I'd forgotten that he was so much of a part of a thread of uh, coolness that was going through different bands and. You know that kind, mm-hmm. there is always that kind of slight edge of you can you can molly you can attenuate the the syrupiness of a of a piece of traditional songwriting using that kind of hint of bleakness as you say and modernity and I think that's a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. It's a bit like taking traditional architecture and and uh, you know and and applying you know kind of more contemporary forms on top of it. Mm-hmm. I think. Right. Were, were you involved in that version of You've Lost That Loving Feeling? Yeah. I sang, I was, uh, I co- I sang the co-lead, yeah. Really? Because, I mean, that's powerfully bleak, the way that you did that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I, listened, I listened to it again the other day, and it's, it's a masterpiece, in fact. You know? Oh, thank you. And um, It wasn't meant to be that bleak. From that, from that era. It wasn't meant to be that bleak. Oh. It, 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 it was like... Approaching it from the point of view of, uh, right, I love the original record, obviously, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean it was myself and Ian that did the did the music, and um, I I just thought, what do you feel like when when something so uh, crucial to your life has left your life? It's an emptiness, isn't it? So mm-hmm. I thought we've got to keep this really really sparse. And make it feel like mm-hmm. some kind of futuristic uh, uh, film soundtrack of of um, mm-hmm. I'm lost, 
you know. And I think we achieved it, actually. Yeah. yeah. And we perform it live. Totally, totally. We, we perform it live and mm -hmm. uh, people people adore it. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a very emotionally engaging thing. Have you ever done anything that bleak? I've probably kind of hinted at it at it in ways, but no, never really. Um, I, th I think part of my personal problem as a composer arranger is I'm too complex. You know, I tend to fill space up very, very quickly and get kind of over troubled with the, the inter interlocking of ideas. Oh, right. And it doesn't leave space for that kind of bleakness anymore. Um, but that's just the way I am. So it's, you know. Right. And do you, hard work. have you ever, I know I've been listening to your uh, fantastic dub um, dub stuff, which uh, mm. I uh, I knew you'd done some of this stuff, but I mean, I've just listened to about an hour of it and I'm terribly impressed. I mean, mm. I grew up with dub myself. I used to go to blues clubs in mm. Sheffield and all that stuff. And um, mm -hmm. for people who don't know, International Observer, go and check it out on spotify it's amazing um so where did the love of all that come from i just heard reggae through the window in the streets in south london you know and and, and eventually started buying some of those records i think my first exposure to dub proper was was um was burning spear and garvey's ghost i think i got the dub version before the regular version so um, I, I sometimes think my mind was blown twice in reverse order because <laughs> 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 uh, I didn't know that the, these amazing pieces of music were actually songs without the without the melody in them. You know, so when I, when I eventually heard the, the originals, it was like I was coming home or something. Yeah. Um, however, I like the emptiness and the again the rebelliousness and the, the confusion of of dub. And also because you're using the tools of the yeah. studio yeah. in a kind of playful way. Yeah. And, and so some of those early dub mixers, um, you know, Scientists and King Tubby and yeah. the Upsetter and those people, they're, they're, they're just kind of legends to me. Yeah. And, um, do you do you monitor when you mix these dub tracks? Do you monitor very loud with the enormous bass end? Um, no, not anymore. I used to, but I can't take it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it. I can take it for short periods, but that's not long enough to do a proper session, you know. So, um, I th I think you, if you monitor loud all the time, your career is oh, yeah. no. going to have an end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, it's just I enjoy, I was enjoying. Uh, I've got some huge speakers in my studio here. And mm. I was enjoying listening to the real deep bottom mm. end. I thought, my God, mm. they probably monitored. I, I did a project uh, with um, with a friend of mine who who uh, is from the Caribbean, uh, who's a lecturer at uh, Goldsmiths, and he was. We we were. I've I do this thing with three dimensional sound and uh, with my company Illustrious right, right. and Vince Clark, and we we recreated a dance hall system. Because a lot of the dancehall systems mm -hmm. in the Caribbean um, are obviously homemade, and but they they set them up in a kind of quadraphonic fashion. Uh, they have mm -hmm. big stacks in four corners, so it immerses you completely, mm -hmm. and that stuff That's right. fa fascinates me. Um, but um, 
I'm really, I'm really interested in your. I'm. Tr- I want to get to the bottom of how you perceive sound and and your production style because, again, I was listening to Hold Me Now and Doctor Doctor and all that, but Hold Me Now in particular has got elements of dub in it. Funnily enough, because it's like it goes, burr, burr, mm-hmm. burr, and then it's mm-hmm. kind of empty, and then and then there's voices, and it's like it mm-hmm. kind of pushes and pulls all the time. I find that really attractive. So it's the opposite of a lot of contemporary pop tracks, which are kind of flatline, kind of optimized level. Right. It's it's got a lot of dynamic range. Is that how you feel? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think probably the dub thing has probably influenced your production style in that sense. It, it has, yeah, and, and I mean, you, you remind me of w- one of the sound systems that that influenced me very much in the early days was called the Mighty Observer, and I partly take my International Observer name from them, and they were al- almost a kind of boys' club um, um, organization in Notting Hill, and they had so many speakers that were all homemade that they sometimes I go to a gig at Yulu, which is the university of London yeah, Union, played there, and yeah. they, they managed to cover every square inch of the wall <laughs> <laughs> all around the room. Wow. These, you know, and they were all, they were all speakers like the size of wardrobes. In fact, <laughs> I think some of them were wardrobes that had just been screwed up and, <laughs> Speakers put them. Yeah, like twenty-inch drivers, and oh. but when you get that kind of surface area, it's actually a physical sensation. It stops being something you're listening to. It's something that engulfs your body, and oh, and so ooh, once you've heard that, you go, mm, "There's more to this bass business than oh, definitely. <laughs> well, than than you hear in your average pop record. So, yeah, it has influenced me. Uh, I like a good bottom, and I don't like. I don't like records that sound kind of lightweight. No, I don't. Do you know about um, uh, one of the projects I did was with a friend of mine who's an archaeoacoustician, believe it or not. He goes around the world looking at ancient burial sites uh, for mm. evidence of sound rituals. And um, mm. one of the things he found out in the Cairns in Ireland, he mm-hmm. measured the um, the resonant frequencies of different shapes and sizes of cans. And they all, it turned out they all were designed to resonate at 111 hertz predominantly. And so he did Mm. some research on some students. He put them in an MRI scanner and fed them, uh, not, didn't tell them what the purpose of the experiment was, but fed them different frequencies and asked and, and measured their brain activity. And guess what? 111 hertz it switches off half of your prefrontal cortex and puts you in a trance. So wow. isn't that amazing? Uh, and that's, that's a scientific is. fact, you know. So in Neolithic man, they used mm-hmm. to design spaces for rituals. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is amazing. It would... It, 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 <laughs> I've been in New Zealand for a couple of years now because of COVID, but normally I live in in France for half the year. And near my house in France, there's a cave where if you walk about half a kilometer into the cave, there are these amazing paintings. You know? yeah. It's a place called, a place called Neo. And so the first question is, why do you have to walk half a kilometer into a cave? Because it's dark after like 10 paces, right? Right. 
Um, so if you're just looking for dark and quiet, then you've got that very. And the reason is, of course, that they found the place that was acoustically resonant, right. deep in the heart of this cave system. Uh, and I love this idea because um, it suggests that the part, partly suggests that the paintings may have just been um, coincidental to the real business of going there, which was to start singing, yeah, and chanting, and you'd go in with the torch of burning wood or whatever. And so visually it would have been spectacular. There were probably drugs involved as yeah. well. <laughs> so um, music and drugs came before the visual arts, I say. Uh, oh, no, absolutely. It's absolutely true. And that was the conclusion that, that they came to, which is the shaman of the Neolithic tribes would um, would go into these cairns, which would... Uh, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, the equinox equinoxes, they it would illuminate the rune runes due to the angle of the sun, right, and they right. would take some drugs, whatever, mushrooms or whatever, interpret the runes. This is what they reckon, and the sound chanting would enhance the entire experience. Anyway, um, let's try and coincidentally, <laughs> coincidentally, you know. You know who's really big on all this theory is Julian Cope from the Teardrop. Yeah, I need to talk to him. I, I need to talk to him properly. Um, okay, um, this is good. We're getting to an interesting point now. So you 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 were doing the um, you were doing this uh, 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 art installation stuff as well, weren't you? The Holy Water Project is that right? Holy Water Project is a, a North Indian classical fusion band. Right, um, and that's just because I, you know, I'd kind of tiptoed into the into the area of learning Indian classical Indian music, but really, to be brutally honest with myself, I was kind of cheating. I was using it as a spice rack, you know, um, <laughs> with my own music, <laughs> rather as the fundamental ingredient. Yeah. And 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 and, but I did develop a bit of a reputation here in New Zealand as someone who kind of worked in film music, for example, but knew a bit about about Indian music. And so some some filmmaker wanted some advice, consulted with me, and then said that he was working with these Indian musicians when, when he was going to shoot. So basically that project um, got me to lock horns with some very amazing players in India. Wow. And um, we, we formed a band and we toured. And... Um, We've toured several times in New Zealand and one in um, legendary tour of, of India as well. Wow, that sounds amazing. And it's a North Indian classical um, outfit. I, I play keyboards in that band and I kind of bring a little bit of Western harmony to the music, which is difficult because it doesn't normally exist in in. in in, in Hindustan classical music, but um, I got to say, it's one of the most exciting things, and it's the opposite of what I do in the studio normally, which is to very, very carefully and precisely design music. In that situation, I have to be an improviser who's paying attention as if my life depends on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're, they're, different... they have to guide you, don't they? Because it's in their it's in their DNA, you know. So. You're kind That's of right. riding that wave, I suppose. Yeah, but if you lose concentration for a second, it's too late. You know? <laughs> um, but does this exist as a film as well on the internet at all? 
Can people see No, and unfortunately, I mean, I think there's a little bit of video of us playing a live gig in uh, in India, but um, other than that, no. Oh, um, the film the, the film that dr- dragged us all together would never got completed. So oh um, no, yeah, it was one I of those, was looking uh, forward to seeing that. Oh well. No. So um, you're going to be on tour with the Human League, right? That's right, in in uh, December, and altered images as well. That'll um, be fun. It it will. I'm so much looking forward to it, and of course, for me, it's going to be the first gig. I haven't had the pleasure of doing these these summer shows. Um, so I'm long overdue and, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit more difficult for me cause I've got to come around from the other side of the world to do, <laughs> to do the first show. Um, and it might be also very difficult getting back into New Zealand afterwards, yeah. but my daughter is expecting a baby, uh, around oh, no. just after Christmas. I, where in, is she uh, in, in the UK? Yeah, so it's a kind of fortunate thing that I'll be there and I'll, I'll be able to stay and uh, meet the new one. And uh, I'll be granddad then. That's right, the first time, yeah. And I'm amazed how um, kind of excited that makes me feel. I would, it would make me very excited. I think it's mm. only when you get to the kind of age, I mean, I'm 65, you're 63. Mm. 63, mm. is that right? Um, no, 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 I'm 66. Who are you? You're older than me. Oh, crikey. Okay. Yeah. Um, just, um, when you get to this age, I think you have to be after, you know, post 60 to understand what it means to be a grandparent mm. it, 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 or, or the significance of it. I never really understood it before. It's just, mm. it's just like one of those things. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, that's a big thing, isn't it? Crikey. It is. It's enormous. And I think it's one of those things like having kids as well, where you, you have the emotional muscles, but they're not being used, right? Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly they just come alive. Wow. Um, it's like it was always meant to, to be part of what you are. Exactly, and, exactly. Um, so um, tell us about performing with Madonna in Live Aid. Oh, gee. Um, I know we're dodging about the timeline, but I think <laughs> it's quite interesting. Well, I was working with Nile Rogers, Um on the his to future days album in new york and he'd just done the like a virgin album with madonna so they were friends um and then the whole business of live aid came up and we realized that we really didn't want to go back to do wembley because it would be too disruptive so we applied for permission as it were to do the the american side and there were just the three of us in the studio so we didn't have our band with us or anything and so we thought, let's put a band together from session players in New York. And we just started trawling around. And someone said, well, how about the David Lesserman band? They're not doing anything at night because normally they're on TV, but it's cancelled because of Live Aid. That's a clever and, idea. <laughs> so we got them. And I'd worked with Steve Stevens from Billy Idol's band. He joined us on guitar. Niall was on guitar, of course. And I said, why don't you... Ask Madonna if she wants to do it. And we did this instant deal where she would sing backing vocals for us if we sang them for her. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's incredible. I've got to look that up on uh, on mm. YouTube. I've never seen that. Um, so um, I think we're cl- close to – oh, yeah, this is a fun fun fact. Um, I was looking at uh, the, the numbers for, for you guys on um, on Spotify – and I realised that 
we uh, Heaven 17 are exactly a third as popular as you are. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't even I don't even totally trust those numbers actually because um well no, I'm I not, think not, to be fair, it's because you had a lot more hits than we did in America, so that uh-huh. kind of makes sense. Um, right, right. Yeah, we right. didn't have really any big hits in America because mm. we didn't tour. So, right. yeah, that's my excuse anyway, and I'm sticking with it. Have you ever toured in America? You must. No, have we, in fact, we were due to do our very first tour uh, uh, two months after the first lockdown, and it got cancelled, yeah. of course, and. Uh, we're gonna we're oh. we're looking at potentially doing it later, later uh, <laughs> next year, um, but it remains to be seen because we're we're not a cheap we're we're not a cheap date unfortunately. No, uh, no, nor me, and it's a real problem. Everyone wants you to do it for ten cents, and it's impossible. Um, so anyway, let's bear that in mind because I'm also thinking of doing America. Are you? <laughs> Okay. Well, maybe uh, maybe year, as a double bill, it could work. That, you know? We'll talk yeah. to Joe about it. I, th- I think it's one of the ways of doing it is to put together a really tasty double or even triple bill yeah. of, of UK musicians from the eighties that that you know that make it a, a you know an irresistible ticket. Yeah, I think we. I mean, not only the fact that you've obviously done a lot better in America than we ever did, but it, it, it would be. And it, I, I mean, the kind of styles would would uh, would fit together quite well, I think. Mm, and mm. Um, uh, if there was a third, okay, here's a good question: Who would the third one be? Uh, probably somebody like Howard, isn't it? Uh, he does a lot of touring in America. Well, I've I've, I've toured America with Howard um, in the last few years. Anyway, in fact, it was kind of that that got me back into this whole thing because I was sort of retired from pop music for a long time, but. Um, it was Howard that said, "Come and come to America and let's tour together." What about Tom Dolby? We can we could ask him. Yeah, if we can drag him away from whatever he's doing up in the university. Well, he took part, he took part in the. Um, we did a, a show with a full British Electric Foundation band, and he he, yeah, he kindly participated in that. So you know, yes, I, I saw I saw that that was a couple of years back. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think I was at the same. Um, rewind North. That's right. Where you did that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. So we're we're down to the um, the real nitty gritty now, which is the smash hits type questions. Um, so your favourite things. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what's your favourite film? Ooh. Or one of them. I always say Rashomon, but that's a little bit of a kind of uh, pretentious answer. I love Rashomon. It's it's brilliant. Yeah. I think it's it's okay. good. I'll go with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, book. Hmm. The 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 book that really got me entranced for a long time was A Suitable Boy. Um, right. I'm 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 you know I'm I'm a lover of India, so maybe that's why. Right. Yeah, yeah. the whole Indian story was so fantastic. Yeah, of course. I've never been to mm-hmm. India. I really want to go. Um, TV show or, or TV series or old, new box set? I haven't had a TV for about 20 years, to be honest. That sounds and... like Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, there's no time in my life for, for idle TV watching, to be honest. I mean, I know a lot of people really love it. 
in the first lockdown, I kind of was seduced into into Netflix um, behavior for a while, but I'm kind of pleased to, yeah. to step away. Yeah, yeah, it, has, it hasn't held me in its thrall, you know. No, no. So okay, that's a good good response. Yeah, um, epiphanal moments in your life. Some kind of big wake-up call, or change of direction, or realization. Um, I often think back to a moment where I slipped on on the very close to an enormous cliff in India. Oh shit! I could very could very very easily have just gone <laughs> over the edge, and um, luckily didn't. But it was a I never felt so sober in, in my life wow. as that moment. When I thought, shit, that was as close as it gets to saying it's all over, you know. I had a similar experience in, um, there's a there's an island in the middle of the Atlantic off the Irish coast, which is the westernmost, westernmost point of Europe called um, Skellig Michael, or Little mm. Michael, I think, or Skelligs, the Skelligs anyway. And it's, it's literally like a... Um, it's like a cartoon island in the ocean that goes up mm -hmm. like that, right? Mm -hmm. And it was the, it was actually in the last but one Star Wars movie where uh, Luke Skywalker, as an old guy, has to pay uh, penitence for his sins or whatever on an mm -hmm. alien planet. And they use this as the location. And um, uh, it was used to be where they sent the monks to do their penitence in the Middle Ages. Oh, oh. And it's got, a, it's got like 600 steps going up round the outside. There is no handrail. Mm -hmm. It's just you and like Hitchcock looking down into the sea with vertigo, oh, right? Oh, and I, I got about... 100 steps up and I freaked out completely. I had to come down on my arse on every step. Mm. And uh, mm. people were just blithely going up with kids on the back and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, oh, my God, I could have easily. One, st one slip and you, you'd be gone. That would be it. Anyway, mm. um, what's your favourite musical artist or composer? Well, we have to go back to the Baroque for me and, and Bach. It's all in bark for me. I agree with you completely. I think um, mm. John Wilson, who was the bass player on the first Penthouse, uh, the first Hem Seventeen album, uh, I asked him who his favourite bass player was, and he said Bark. And he was seventeen. Yeah. You know. Anyway, um, the Baroque is is again at the heart of a lot of. I can hear some of the progressions in your music, and our music. Mm. Mm. Um, ambition unfulfilled. Ooh. Nothing springs to mind, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think I'm really the, very much an ambitious person. I, A lot of people I, say that. I, I just kind of drift along and things happen, you know. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Um, fa favorite visual artist or conceptual artist? Hmm. Well, I work a lot with my wife, who's a visual artist, Lauren Drescher. Oh, right, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and um, so <laughs> I have to say that I'm very involved uh, in her work. Very politically correct. <laughs> she's asleep. So she's asleep. So she's not, she's not asleep. <laughs> That's very uh, apposite, yeah. Uh, which of your own work are you most proud of? Wow. 
Well, for pop music, the Into the Gap album, I suppose, the right. one with Hold Me Now and Dr. Yeah. Doctor on it. Um, it's a mess. There was a there was a group after the Thompson who's called Babel and the first Babel album was this kind of psychedelic masterpiece as far as I was concerned. Well, I've got to listen to that. I've never heard it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it, it, that stands out as well as something uh, immense and to, to, to feel good about. I know you're vegan. Uh, yeah. You so, and you've, you've mm-hmm. eschewed drugs and drink. Is that because you were uh, the opposite in your earlier years? Partly, yes. I mean, I definitely uh, went around the block a few times. Um, it was because I got into yoga, basically. The, again, the Indian thing. And um, committed myself to that. And it, it became, um, I reached the point where I had to, uh, yeah, commit to it and say, this is this is no longer, a, you know, one day on, one day off kind of uh, commitment. <laughs> I think that's gonna, a healthy thing, though. Everybody has to come to some kind of realisation as they get older. Yeah. You're going to end yeah. up dead. Is that so? Yeah. And also it saved me a lot of uh, waking up feeling rotten, you know. Yeah. And also when you have kids, uh, they don't mix, does it? That, that stuff and kids the, do not mix. That's right. Some people manage to do it. But um, anyway... Um, for better or worse, I took that route and I stuck to it. And I was I was strict vegetarian for a long time, but not vegan. And then eventually, I thought, hmm, I'll try this vegan thing because people had been talking about it, and you know, I was attracted to the idea. I thought I'd last a few weeks as an experiment, but I've been doing it for ten years now as well. Right, and you, and it's it's kept you healthy, presumably. Well, um, do you have to it, take supplements? It, it's no, it's demonstrably a healthier right. way, way of living. Um, but that's not the main reason I do it. You know, it's it's, it's partly a, uh, partly a, an ecological issue now. Of course, is a yeah. big part of it, um, and a moral one as well. But um, but yeah, obviously the health benefits are massive. You, I mean, when when you say do I take supplements, I think there is some obligation to make sure you get enough things like b12 but yeah. if you're if you're taking soy milk then you probably it's it has b12 in it <laughs> so. yeah. no I'm, I'm it's a serious question it wasn't a specious mm-hmm. question I, mm-hmm. I, I i'm interested in it that's why yeah. i mean mm-hmm. i i i um i i'm i've read an awful lot about nutrition and stuff and i mm-hmm. take supplements so that's why i was asking mm-hmm. um and finally it's always the final question um, I, but I know what the answer is because you answered it earlier. What's your favourite synth? Ah, yes, it has to be the OBX A by Oberheim. I hear that there's a there's a chance that they're going to bring out one of these fake versions of it, and I'd be interested to see if it's the anything like the same thing. Well, judging because... by the 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 my synths I've got, uh, I've still got the Jupiter Four, Roland Jupiter Four, and the System One Hundred mm-hmm. and the Korg Seven Hundred mm-hmm. and all. But um, none of the, the um, digital implementations of those are nowhere mm. near as good. Uh, no. it, you just don't get the warmth in the bottom end mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's it. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for giving me time in your evening, isn't it? It's your evening. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's a great pleasure, and I'm so pleased we could do this. And I'm looking forward to to seeing you in uh, in the UK at some stage, Absolutely. and who knows, maybe in America. Oh in a couple yeah, of years. let's have a talk about that. Actually, I'll mention it to our management <laughs> and see what they think, because uh, we are in discussions at the moment. So right. Um, but the uh, and send my love to Phil and the girls. Uh, 
<laughs> Will do. Oh, you've met them, haven't you? You've met them before. Uh, I, I have. I don't know what the backstage protocols will be, whether it's all hugs and kisses or whether we'll all be secretly going into our dressing rooms and never, <laughs> never crossing the corridors. I don't know. I mean, we. it was really weird when we were doing the uh, the um, Rewind and Let's Rock shows because, like, everything would look completely normal. You know, it's mm-hmm. the same structure inside, same people, mm-hmm. everything. But everybody's got, like this thousand mile stair thing going on because everybody's mm. been through hell right right it's interesting right, right. but that will melt away i hope and uh, good, good. Fine. all right man lovely to see you i shall see and you. you i'll see you at a show soon and good luck with the tour thanks very much all right man thanks Cheers. again bye-bye Well, that was Tom, a lovely guy, very kind of calm and measured, um, trapped in New Zealand at the moment, but he's coming back for the Human League tour and to see, hopefully, his daughter give birth to his first grandchild, which is a lovely thing. Big warm welcome to our new sponsors, SJM Concerts, Simon Moran. They are one of Britain's leading promoters. They also promote our our tours generally they represent people like uh take that spice girls foo fighters coldplay stormzy muse robbie williams peter k billy eilish adele the killers arctic monkeys little mix amongst many others um we are thrilled to be associated with them and i can't think of a better sponsor for us so thank you very much for your help in keeping this podcast going it's email time again uh justin walther's your shows are on my calendar with religious fervour, and I have not missed one since you started your podcast. Fan of your work since the 80s, born in 71, uh, M17, XTC, Ice House, Depeche Mode, uh, these and many other electronic acts were on the radio here in Newcastle, Australia via 2NXAM. Uh, they played everything you could imagine back in the day. I think it's interesting finding about finding out about specialist stations around the world back in the day. Um, Australian tip, Tom Ellard from Severed Heads. Um, Interestingly enough, I just interviewed Paul Hartnell from... um, Paul Hartnell from Orbital, and he loves Severed Heads. Uh, So maybe I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, why not? Good idea. Shane King. Martin, I'm unbelievably excited that you have Telex on the podcast. As you know, Telex is such an overlooked and underappreciated band and pioneer in electropop. I haven't even listened to the episode yet and know it is going to be great. I am greatly enjoying the podcast. You're doing a great job and wonderful service for the electronic music community. It's not only for the electronic music community, it's for the general public, really, but thank you. Uh, between Newman, Casali, Fry, Dolby, and now Telex, you've already hit many of my musical heroes. Um, a conversation with Jar would be lovely. Oi, Jar. No. Um, Jean-Michel Jar, no idea how to contact him. Sparks has a doc- documentary coming out. I'm in contact with their management. I've um, not heard back from them yet, which is a bit sad, because I, I have actually spoke to uh, Russell in the past. Um, and I was I, 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 I appear in the documentary itself 
As a fan of your music and now your podcast, I want to say thank you for everything. Thanks, Shane. I thank you for everything. A um, couple of things to mention. One is if you have any ideas for guests um, or any ideas for the uh, podcast, please email me at electronicallymartin at gmail.com. But more importantly, I would really love if you felt you were able to, for you to become a patron on our Patreon site, which is called Electronically Hours, for the price of a pint or a cup of coffee per month, uh, you'll help me keep producing these podcasts, which are free to everyone. So uh, if you can afford it, I'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind having a look at that as a possibility. And in return, I will give you exclusive um, exclusive episodes that are unavailable elsewhere. And uh, you'll be able to be in close direct contact with me email-wise. There'll be competitions with prizes. And generally, it's more like a kind of community vibe. Um, and if you want to be part of that community, sign up to the Patreon site. Just search it. Uh, have a look at patreon.com and search for Electronically Hours. I'd really appreciate that. Um, I funded this myself for six months and it's costing me a bloody fortune. So I'd really appreciate it if we, I could at least cover my costs. And uh, if you would help me to do that, that'd be great. Um, looking forward to bringing you amazing... Uh, I've got... I've just done a whole bunch of new, uh, new interviews with some uh, very interesting people. And uh, I think you're going to be impressed. So tune in, same bat time, same bat channel, next week. Bye!